You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. If you have your Bibles with you and turn in the book to Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. We'll be in and around the book a little bit tonight. We'll go some other places as well. And uh, very excited about this opportunity because the story of Ruth is an incredible story. I hope you're familiar with it. Um, we're kind of making the assumption tonight that you have at least a passing familiarity with the story. Um, Ruth, chapter 1 will begin kind of next week, and you'll get more in-depth with it. Uh, but it's a cool story about ordinary folks like you and me doing everyday kind of things and seeing how God involves in himself in our everyday, normal, mundane, routine world and especially with those who are living lives of integrity and obedience to God and what God can do in a life like that. And so, as Barry mentioned, in order to understand the book of Ruth, we also had to understand the book of Judges a little bit. We'll talk about that some. But mostly we want to understand the culture and the background of what was taking place during that time because this story has a lot of things and elements in it that as an American in the 21st century, we, we're not going to readily understand. There, there are going to be things that are foreign and unique to us that we just don't get because that's not how we live. And so I felt it was important to kind of dive into that tonight so that the rest of the weeks will make a little bit more sense, also have a deeper meaning for us. And so let's talk a little bit about culture. Um, the default for us is our culture is the normal culture, Right? The way, the way we eat, the foods we eat, the things we do, where we went to school, how we dress, the way we talk, that's normal. That's, that's how everyone should do it. And, uh, you know, this is the first thing that we have to overcome. And so this, this happens sometimes when you go to somebody's house, you realize, oh, they don't, have, they don't eat Cheerios for breakfast. Or, hey, that family, they don't, they don't do curfews. Or, you know what, those people still arrange marriages for their children. And so it's kind of an eye-opening. I've had the privilege of going to places like Moldova or China where the cultural differences are just large. You see them everywhere. They're on a grand scale. But the first time I stepped into this different culture kind of concept when I was eight years old, I'll never forget, I was invited to a friend's house to spend the night. And it just so happened it was a Saturday night. We were going to spend the night and get up the next morning, go to church with his family. And so that was the arrangement. We're sitting there at the breakfast table on Sunday morning before church and his parents are busy making breakfast. And while they're making breakfast, they slide a couple of glasses of milk on the table for me and my friend. And um, so we're sitting there waiting for breakfast to finish up. I decided, you know what, I'll have a little bit of milk. I reached over to get my glass of milk. And as I did, out of the corner of my eye, I felt like I saw something move in my milk. I didn't know what, what that could be. So I got a little closer look at it, looked at it and didn't see anything. I'll, I'll have a sip then. As I took a sip, Something in the glass hit my lip, and I immediately shoved the glass back down. I couldn't figure out what this was. I was a little startled by this. My friend observes this, and he says, what's wrong? I said, I think there's something in my milk. And he was like, yeah, ice. And I got to tell you, in my mind, I was wondering what kind of terrorist camp I had found myself in. <laughs> Who does this? Who puts ice in their milk. Because growing up, I'd had milk all the time, no ice. I go to school. What do they do? They give you milk or chocolate milk in a carton, no ice. Been to grandma's house, you get milk, no ice. All of a sudden, I'm faced with milk with ice. I don't know what to do. I freeze. Throughout breakfast, I'm kind of eyeing mom and dad because I'm like, I thought our families had more in common. I, I, thought, I thought you were like us. 
And then I realized I'm trying throughout breakfast to figure out how did I miss this? How did I not see this coming? And then I remember before I left, my mom said, oh, don't forget they're Presbyterian. I went, that's it. That's it. Thanks, mom. I appreciate that. So the pieces came together. Uh, Different places have different ways, right? And for us tonight, one of the things we need to do is be able to take our preferences, our culture, our things, and we just need to set them aside. In fact, Really, anytime we come to Scripture, that's kind of what we need to do. But especially as we look at the book of Ruth, there's just so many things that we're going to want to judge. And we're going to want to say, ooh, that's, that's weird. That's gross. That's disgusting. We would never do it that way. And you're right. We wouldn't. But understand that in their day, this was normal. So that, that may help. Um, so in the, in the tribal culture that was ancient Israel, and it was tribal in this way. Here's kind of what that means. Family is at the core of everything that happens, everything. Every expression of culture, family is at the core of that. So here's what that looks like. There's at least three ways that this family idea pops out in the story of Ruth. Let's look at that. One way is your vocation, right? So when you're born into a family, your vocation is determined in a tribal culture. So if your dad is a farmer, guess what you're going to be? Farmer. You don't get a choice. There's no say. You don't get to say, well, you know, I think I'd like to be an artist. Say, no, we don't worry. you're going to be a farmer. That's what's going to happen. And in fact, at birth, all this is decided. If in your birth order matters, your gender matters. If you're a female, your life kind of goes this direction. If you're a male, your life kind of goes this direction. And they don't really meet. There's, there's a difference. We'll get to that in a minute. Also, birth order matters. So like you're the firstborn son. You're going to be like dad's apprentice. You're going to be the guy that he's going to put his energy and time and effort into to train you up to be the next patriarch of the family. You're going to one day replace dad as the leader of the household. And so all the eggs get put in your basket. If you're, if you're second born, it's a lot less. There's a lot less put on you. There's a lot less expected from you. By the way, your inheritance is a lot less. If you're third, fourth, fifth, sixth born, it just goes from there. By the time you're eighth born, your inheritance can fit in your pocket. It's just not much. Good news is nobody really expects anything of you. So it's a little easier, a little easier life. Not much expectation, not much burden placed on you. A good example of this is the story of First Samuel when the prophet Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, I got good news, Jesse. God's picked one of your sons to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse's like, oh, great. He waltz out his firstborn. How did he know to waltz out the firstborn? Well, the firstborn is just the obvious choice because this is who they invested the time and energy in to be the next leader of the household. If you're going to be a leader of something, surely you could be the leader of Israel, right? You, you're the obvious choice, not the secondborn, the thirdborn, the fourthborn. And so imagine Jesse's shock when Samuel says, nah, not that one. You got any other sons? He's scratching his head going, what, what, what happened? What, what, what's wrong here? But he brings out sons two through seven, and he goes through the lineup, and Samuel says, no, this is not the one God's picked. Not this one, not this one, not this one. You got any other sons? Well, son number eight's out there somewhere. We'll have to go look for him. We have no idea where he's at. We have no expectation on him. So David is the one that's chosen. And it's interesting that in this situation, God is countercultural, Right? He, he went against the flow of culture to pick the king. Sometimes we look at our culture and we think, well, God is countercultural. God's always 
countercultural when man's the shaper of the culture. Because God does what God wants to do, not what man wants to do. In fact, he says that in, in the story. He says, I look at the heart while man looks at the outward appearance. So birth order matters, gender matters, and the firstborn is going to be watched like a hawk. Burden is going to be placed on him. Expectation will be placed on him. Another way that uh, this family idea works out is in law enforcement. We'll see that as well in the Ruth, in the Ruth story. Um, in law enforcement, in, in the tribal society, there are no police. There's no police station. There's no jail. There's the family. And so you get in trouble, you answer to dad. Dad calls you out on the carpet and he straightens you out. The, the saying, spare the rod and spoil the child, it's not a slogan. It's, it's real. And that's brought to bear in that situation. And so this is what happened. And if dad can't get you in line, then his uncles, your uncles will. They'll come alongside and, and straighten you out. And if they can't, then what they're going to do is they're going to pass you on to the tribal elders and, and tribal elders will sit you down and make life tough on you. And if that still doesn't work, the tribal elders will call a special meeting of the village and say, okay, everybody show up, bring some rocks because we've got a stoning. And that's how it happened. So it was kind of personal, right? Because this was family member. But laws were dealt with in the context of the family. Another way that uh, the tribal society comes into our story is through the social safety net. So if you got in trouble, uh, you committed a crime or misdemeanor, or you got in trouble financially or whatever happened, uh, in, in Western society, you have options. You've got unemployment. You've got Medicare, Medicaid. You, you've got uh, other, other options like orphanages or foster homes. There are things that, that are, are there to provide for people in need, people who fall into the gaps. They're not always high-functioning, but they're, they're there. The only social safety net in the tribal society was the family. So you hoped you were in a good one, and you hoped you were in a good standing with them should you need them. They were your social safety net, and that was it. You'll see that come into play in the story. Another part of Israelite society is the home itself. And I want to show you an image here of Israelite society and how it breaks down. Um, there are different... Uh, degrees of society here, different levels. We're going to start in the center and work our way out. That guy in the center that's uh, is black there, uh, it says the word, it's Hebrew word, Beit Av, Beit Av. Beit Av simply means household of the father, okay? I think a lot of times when we think household in America, we we naturally kind of think about mom. Uh, when we talk about things in the household, we think about mom, but in this culture, Dad was in charge. He was the head of it. Everything revolved around him. So the root of the culture was this bait of. It was the extended family. It was mom, dad, and kids, and probably some grandparents in the house. And this was the core. For us, the core of society would be mom, dad, and kids in the suburbs. But this, this had some extended family in the house. And uh, this is how it was. This was the core of society was this bait of. The dad was in charge and there would usually be uh, a mom and a dad, sons and their wives and their children, and maybe another generation above that. When the Beit Av got too big to handle, it got, they needed some more room, needed some more space, 
maybe some distance between one another. They would split off. The eldest sons would go, and now they would become in charge of their bait off. They would now lead their place. And when they had multiple bait offs from one family, that's how you got a clan. So when we talk about a clan, you're talking about, for example, I have two brothers, and if we were to go and split off and make our own households, which we've done, we would be considered a clan, but we would all live on the same compound, right? We would live in proximity to another because our, our task is still shared. We're still farming the land. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so a village would be made up of a sequence of clans. And so that's kind of not represented in here, but a village would be multiple clans living, and there would be about two to 250 people in, in, a, in a village. So after the clan comes the tribe. You've heard of Israel having 12 tribes, right? So this is what that is, the 12 tribes. Each tribe would have had their own leader, and he would have been a pretty uh, tough guy. He would have been very authoritative. Um, and this is the 12 tribes make up the nation of Israel. And this is their government this time because Moses and Joshua are long gone. They had been kind of leading the nation and directing the nation and speaking f for God to the people of Israel. And the kings haven't shown up yet. Saul and David and Solomon have, haven't arrived yet. This is not their time. This is in between. This is the time of the judges. And so this is their government. And so you can understand at the end of the book of Judges where it says that everybody was doing right in their own eyes, you can understand why that was because there was nothing here but families kind of living on their own place, doing their own thing, kind of doing what was right, made sense for them. Everybody kind of had their own way, their own plan. You could just imagine what Birmingham would look like if every family just kind of did what they want and there was no overarching governing control. And so that would be chaos, and that was what was happening in the book of Judges at this time. It was chaos, and their society was unraveling morally, socially, ethically, in every way you can imagine. And so this was happening uh, every day in, in front of their eyes. And so let's talk a little bit more about the father's household. What would go on? What would that look like? How would that function? Three vocabulary words I want to give you. They all start with the root, patri. P-A-T-R-I-E-R-I, -E and it means of the father. So the first word is patriarchal. You're familiar with this word. It just simply means that the authority in this culture rests with the oldest living male. So if you're grandpa and you're getting old, you don't get shoved off to the nursing home. You're, you're running the household. You're, you're in charge. You're making the decisions. You're making the calls. You're doing things. And a good patriarch, what he would do is he wouldn't rest at night until everybody was fed, Everybody was healthy, and everybody was doing, doing good, doing what they were supposed to do. He was checking in on everybody, making sure everyone was, was good. And all the responsibility for the household falls on his watch. The second word is patrilineal. Patrilineal. This means the line of the father, so the descendant line of the father. And so basically, we're going we're gonna to move things along the line of the men in the household. And so all the resources of the family get moved from one generation to the next through this family system from, from man to man to man. There would not have been eBay or Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or garage sales in this culture. A, they just didn't have a lot of stuff laying around, okay? But even if they did, that's not how they would have dispersed it. Everything they had was passed down. It had been passed down to them from generations and it was going to be passed down to the next set of generations. Everything moved through the family line, okay? You didn't just have a garage sale one day and get rid of a bunch of stuff. 
And so there, let's talk about a couple things that uh, ways this patrilineal idea shows up in the story of Ruth. Uh, you'll, you'll see this in the next few weeks. First way is in how they dealt with the ownership of land. This was a big deal because this was one of the biggest assets that they had was their land. And so how they dealt with this is important and it'll show up in, in chapter one and chapter four. Uh, on, there's a scripture that's it's, it's coming from Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 28. I won't read all of it. But this is known as the inalienable land law. And you, basically what it says is you just can't sell off your family's land. And if a family were to fall into some kind of trouble and they have to sell their land financially uh, because there's, there's, there's a crisis or whatever, that actually it's a re relative's responsibility to go step back in and buy their land back for them so that it stays within the family, okay? This is important. This is what was supposed to happen. This is why you hoped you were in good standing with your family because if you ever lost this, it was a big investment for someone to have to make. We'll, we'll see this in chapter one when Elimelech, Naomi's husband, has to sell their land to go live in Moab because of the famine that's in Israel. And uh, this is no big, this is, a, this is a big deal for him to walk away from his homeland because again, this land was in his family. It was passed down. This is how they lived. This is where they lived. This is where his descendants were supposed to live. And so to walk away from this was kind of a big deal. Chapter four, we see this when the family returns and now the land has to be repurchased and given back to them. And we'll, we'll see that in the final chapter. A second way patrilineal exhibits itself is how they viewed their children. Okay, a couple ways in this. Uh, to them, children were an economic asset. You and I wouldn't think of our children that way because if you have children, you know. Once you've paid for braces and you've paid for school and you've paid for dance lessons and you've paid for this and you've paid for that and you've paid for their shoes and their clothes and gotten them into college and all their other assorted wants and needs, you're in the poorhouse. Your children are not an economic asset in that way. But in this culture where you're farming to live, they're labor. So they are valuable. They have an asset. They, they matter in this, in this economy, in this way of understanding. Uh, your children are definitely a blessing from the Lord when you're trying to grow crops and live. And so this is, a, this is a big deal. Children were an economic asset. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, talks a little bit about this. Uh, this is known, this passage is known as a leveret law, leveret law, um, because it, it deals with the inheritance through the male line to our, from parent to child. So if a husband died with no kids, here's the deal. A husband, he's married, he's got a wife, they have no children. Husband dies, where does the stuff go? Remember, it's passed down through the male line. It doesn't go to his wife. And if he has a daughter, it doesn't go to her either because it's passed down through the male line. So if he has no sons, where does it go? It goes back into the family. The family gets it. That leaves mom and daughter where? Outside of the bait off. Outside of the place where they have protection. Outside of the place where they have provision. Outside of all the things that they need to survive and be taken care of. They're, they're, they're left hanging. So sons were vital. Because we'll see in a minute what, what this does in a women's place in the society. 
Third example of patrilinealism would be the genealogies in the Bible. The genealogies, we'll see one in the book of Ruth at the end because we're connecting what happened with Ruth and Boaz to the genealogy of Christ, how they were just a few generations from King David, and King David was ultimately in the line of the Messiah. And so we're going to look at a genealogy in, in the last chapter, and genealogies in the Bible are, you won't find a woman's name in them. And it's not because God hates women or women are not important to him. It's because of this patrilineal idea. This was how the legal records were, how they were kept. They kept it through the male line. And so if it, if it said Mr. Mr. Smith and then Mr. Smith's son, that's how they knew who belonged to who, who inherited what from whom, and, and what to do with the stuff. And so that's, that's how they traced that stuff. And so there was a reason why you'll see um, the genealogies in the Bible. It's a patrilineal idea. Finally, um, patrilinealism impacts women in this culture this way. When you're born as a woman, you're born into your father's bait of, your, his, his household. So you are known as your father's daughter, okay? Then when you get married, you leave your father's household, you leave the bait of, and you go now and you join your husband's bait of. You're now known as your husband's wife, and hopefully you bear a son and he grows up to be a strapping young man um, and then he's able to take care of you later in your life. So if your husband dies, you're now protected legally, financially, you have a place. So if you're a woman, you're, you're kind of passed from father to husband to hopefully son in, the, in this culture. And again, if you're a lady, I know you're sitting there going, this was seen as normal to them, okay? So understand that this is what's going on. This is their thinking. This is what's happening. So it's important as a woman to be connected to the bait of because that's where your security was found. That's where your peace <laughs> was found. That's where your, your provision was found, okay? Again and again, this is why the Old Testament reminds us to take care of the widow's and the orphans, because it recognizes that they fall out of this security net. Um, let's talk a little bit about the family compound. The third word is patrilocal, patrilocal, and basically this means where the father is. The, what's, what's the space around him look like? How is it configured? What's going on? And so the family unit would have this living space. There's a picture up here of a family compound, and I want you to take a look at it. It shows kind of what a living space looks like. There we go. And so you see a couple dwelling places there, some living space. You, you, it's not very large. You see animals running around. It's walled in. It's fenced in. Um, but you see mostly women working there. They're doing a lot of uh, labor, like grinding grain, meal preparation. Um, they're maybe doing some textile weaving. Uh, they're keeping the small kids close by, maybe doing some education in between chores or along with the chores, tending to a few of the animals while the men are out watching the sheep and, and they're farming the land. And this is what would have been daily life would have been like. Uh, in this compound, you would have seen a sequence of relatives. You would have seen senior adults, middle-aged adults, young adults, teenagers, children, the whole mix. And they would have been doing these types of things. And that's what the family compound would have looked like in that day. And because there's two dwelling places there, there's probably uh, at least um, a mom and dad, a couple of siblings, grown siblings, at least a couple of siblings, maybe more, and their children as well. 
So another vocabulary term is kinsman redeemer. Uh, this has to do with the responsibility of the relative would have to step up to the plate to be the safety net to a family member. A good patriarch stepped up to the plate if his family member had been shoved to the margins of society uh, because of life circumstances, again, or poverty. Uh, he would put his checkbook on the table and say, you know what, how much is it because this one belongs to me? This one's mine. I'll, I'll, I'll foot the bill for whatever we need to do because I am the patriarch of this family. This person belongs to me. And so if you were captured by an enemy or you were a prisoner of war or your life was at risk in some way, the patriarch, a good one anyway, would go to whatever place you were at and say, whatever it takes, I'm here for this one, my life for his. Take me instead. I'm putting my life on the line for him. That's what a good patriarch would have done. But you'll see in the story is that Ruth and Naomi become two of the most voiceless, marginalized people in this society. Who would stand up for them? Who would foot the bill for them? Who would say, your life for mine? Who would say that for them? And of course, if we know the story, we know the ending of that. But that's what Boaz would have had to do. He would have had to really step in, especially since he wasn't the closest relative. Uh, he was a relative, but he was willing to be the kinsman. He was willing to say, I will redeem you. Um, my resources, my home, and my life for yours. Three main characters in the story. Uh, there are other characters, but these, these kind of uh, are the ones that the story uh, enfolds around. And that's Naomi the widow. We'll talk about her real quick. Ruth the Moabite woman. And Boaz the Israelite farmer. Now, Naomi was a widow. We find that out real quick in the, in the first few verses of chapter one. Won't go there just yet. Um, but the book is entitled Ruth. Uh, Hannah, down in preschool, our preschool director and our women's ministry director, wanted me to point out that the book was called Ruth, not Boaz. I think it was a woman thing that she wanted me to say that. So I've said that to you. Uh, but actually, it's, it's interesting because Ruth... Even though it's entitled Ruth, the, the story really is told through the eyes of Naomi. It's really, it's really kind of everything kind of comes back to her, connects back to her in some way. And so really it's kind of the story of Naomi's journey, her Naomi's path. But obviously Ruth is a big part of that. So, you know, I, I wasn't asked to title it. It just, that's, you just need to know as you read the book, that's, that's kind of what's happening. Um, and Naomi, Naomi uh, starts out uh, pretty good her, her in the, early in the story uh, because her name, Naomi, means pleasant. And life was pleasant. She was married. She had two sons. Uh, she lived. Everything was taken care of. She was, she was doing good. As a woman in this culture, everything was looking roses until there was a famine in the land. That changed everything. A lot like 9-11 or COVID for some of us, uh, the famine she measured her life by the famine. So before the famine and after the famine were two different stories for Naomi. In fact, when she comes back to her home, she says, hey, they're welcoming Naomi. Isn't that Naomi? Hey, Naomi, it's great to see you. She said, don't call me Naomi, because again, her name meant pleasant. She says, call me Mara, because Mara means bitterness. And her life had become bitter. Her life had turned into something she, she never really had, had imagined would be. And so, so she has a turning point. And of course, later on, we know that through, through some events and circumstances, her life changes again and joy is restored. That pleasantness, that protection, that peace is, is returned. And uh, she's, she's uh, 
as I said, everything kind of goes through her perspective. Next, we have Ruth. And often in, in the story of Ruth, the narrator mentions her, not every time, but again and again this happens, where it's her name. You see Ruth, comma, the Moabitess. She's defined by where she's from. This is important. We'll get to that in a minute. Won't take time right now. But where she is from is key to understanding her role in the story and her place in this culture. And so we're going to pay attention to that because that matters. Anything that's repeated in Scripture, we want to pay attention to. This is no exception. Ruth, that she's a Moabite woman matters because it makes her a total outsider. She is not welcome in Israel. She is seen as the total outsider. We'll explain that in a little further. But today's terms, she would be an illegal immigrant who is a day laborer in the fields. That's kind of how we would see her in our culture. And that's touching on how they saw her and theirs and, and worse. Then that gets us to Boaz, the Israelite farmer. Boaz is kind of non, no nonsense. He's kind of a big fish in a really small pond. Uh, he grew up in the city of Bethlehem, where this story mostly takes place in. And he lived there his entire life. So he knew everybody. Everybody knew him. And he was, like I said, the big fish in the small pond. He was well-known. He was uh, con well-connected. He was fairly wealthy. He had influence. When, when, when Boaz spoke, people listened, took note. You would, you would almost even say that he was, he was, if Ruth was the outsider, Boaz is the ultimate insider. You almost call him a, a good old boy. Uh, not, in a, not in a negative or pejorative sense, but he's just well-connected and, and known and, and has been there his whole life. So these guys, Ruth and Boaz, are coming from two different ends of the social spectrum, the outsider and the insider. Couldn't be more different. And yet, there's two different passages in the book of Ruth, we'll look there right now, that, that have the same adjective that describes both of them. If you've got your book open to Ruth, uh, go to Ruth, actually, chapter 2, verse 1. And you can read along with me. It says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. This is the first time we meet Boaz. It's in chapter 2. And it tells that the, he is a man of standing. There's a Hebrew word for that. It's the word Hayil, H-A-Y-I-L, Hayil. And basically what it means is this is a person with such moral conviction, such moral integrity that it provides him with influence, okay? There's other things it means. It has some military implications. It sometimes it's a very masculine word. It's applied to several men in the Old Testament. But, but Boaz is a man of such great integrity that it, it affords him influence. Does that make sense? And so this is, this is a word reserved for him. But skip over to, to chapter 3, verse 11. Boaz is speaking to, uh, speaking to Ruth in, in verse 11, chapter 3. And he says to her this. He says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. There's that phrase, noble character. And the Hebrew root words is exactly the same, the word hayil. Ruth is a woman of noble character. And get this, because she's a woman in this culture, she has no influence, she has no voice, she has no say-so, and she's a foreigner. And yet, what 
Boaz is pointing out here, he says, because of your character, because of your strength and character, because of your integrity, you have influenced me. You have influenced the people of this town. They have noticed who you are. And so, ladies, when it feels like you don't have the influence, your influence comes from your character and comes from your integrity. In fact, Proverbs 31 has a whole chapter where the word hi'il is also used for a woman. There's only two places in Scripture that I know of, and that's Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman. It describes a worthy woman. There's that word again, a worthy woman whose strength of character gives her integrity and influence in this world. So I encourage you ladies to look up chapter 31 of Proverbs uh, a little later and, and figure out what that looks like because that describes Ruth and hopefully it describes you as well. So that's Boaz and Ruth, people of character, finding themselves together in this land who, despite being filled with God's people, were not acting as God's people should. And yet, Ruth and Boaz decide, doesn't matter what everybody else was doing, here's how we're going to live our lives. We're going to live with character. We're going to live with integrity. We're going to live with obedience to God. And that's that's what this story is about. Let's talk a little bit about the setting of the book of Ruth. We'll talk about that in three ways. The geographical setting, we'll talk about the biblical setting, and the spiritual setting, what was kind of going on spiritually in, in that time. So geographical setting, real quick, it took place in the city of Bethlehem. There should be a map up here um, putting Bethlehem in context. Uh, it is right across the Dead Sea from the, the nation of Moab. You'd have to go north and above or down below. Uh, it wasn't an easy journey to get there, uh, although they were not that far apart uh, as the crow flies. Uh, Bethlehem today is still not a big city. It would be a few thousand people more than Helena, a few thousand less than Alabaster. So even today, it's not a big city. It's not a big place. Back then, it would have been about 200, 250 people. And actually, even though we say the story took place in Bethlehem, it actually took place in a suburb of Bethlehem called Ephrathah. And if, if Bethlehem was small, Ephrathah was podunk. It was, it was tiny. And so very, very small place, even for its day. The biblical setting is Ruth takes place right after the book of Judges. You, you, you saw that when you turned past Judges to find Ruth. You, you, all, you saw that. And there's a reason for that. If you go to verse 1 of chapter 1, turn over there, very first, book of, very first words in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, that's a clue. That happens, what happens in this book happened during the time of the judges. That's why we say in order to understand Ruth, you gotta understand judges. And so let's spend a little bit of time talking about the judges uh, real quick. So Ruth happens during the time of the judges. That's, we think that the, this book happened between 1160 and 1100 BC. Nobody knows for sure exactly, but it's kind of in that window. And then the recording of that book happened about a year later. So the writing, people who wrote it down, it, it was about 100 years after the fact. Um, so let's talk about the book of Judges. There was a cycle that happened. There were, there were 15 judges mentioned in the book of Judges, 12, I think, that, that really are talked about and discussed at length. And there's this cycle. If you start over here at 11 o'clock, you start with the people of, of Israel in, in, in an era of obedience. They're following God. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And then they, as, as time passes, they fall into disobedience. They're, they're getting away from God's law, getting away from his rule. 
And then God, in order to reverse that, sends foreign oppression. That usually means some kind of army is involved. And this hurts them, harms them. They start to call out in repentance and cry for God, deliver us. We'll change our ways. Just come and save us and rescue us from our enemy. And then God sends a deliverer. It's a judge. Now, when you hear the word judge, it's not robe and, and on a bench and doing legal proceedings. Uh, this was a military leader, charismatic military leader who could rally the troops, who could get people to jump in for the cause and go and fight the enemy. And uh, sometimes it was a man. In one case, it was a woman. And uh, they would go and they would fight the, the villains and they would have a military victory. And for a time, they would go back to obedience and things would be great until it wasn't again. And they kept doing it. Every time they have a new judge, this cycle started over and it started over and it started over and over and over. And as it cycled through that cycle, it also cycled this way. They were spiraling out of control till it looked like God's plan to use the people of Israel to bring about a savior, a Messiah one day. It looked like they were circling around the drain and we would be gone from the face of the earth because it was getting really bad. In fact, it was so full of corruption, political intrigue, murder, kidnapping, race, rape and abuse that if you made a movie, it would be beyond rated R depending on the depiction. In fact, in preparing for this, uh, chapter 19 of the book of Judges, there's 21 chapters. By chapter 19, there were more than one commentary writer who said things are so bad, the, 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 the behavior and the activities that go on in chapter 19 are so bad, I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to move on to chapter 20. More than one said that. And so it was, it was bad. And these were the people of God who were living this way. It was worse than Sodom in many cases. And so God had, had, had to deal with that. And so that's the beauty of the book of Ruth, is in this time, this low point in the nation of Israel, how people were choosing to live, again, there was a couple people who were saying, you know what? We're, we're, we're here and we're in it with God. We're gonna follow him. We're gonna do his will. No matter what it costs us, no matter what anybody else is doing, even if it hurts us, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk with God. Why is it a big deal that Ruth is defined as the woman from Moab? Why is that a big deal? Let's talk about that. There's three reasons why, at least three reasons. One is how the Moabites came to be, okay? Let's talk about that real quick. Go all the way back in, in Israel's history to Abraham. He was, the, he was the father of the Israelite nation. God spoke to him and said, I'm gonna make your descendants a great nation. So, so we're, we're, we're back there. He has a nephew named Lot, and Lot's in his family tree, right? Well, Lot lived in the city of Sodom. Bad things were going on there. God says, we're gonna destroy the city of Sodom. Get out, spare your life, and go. Take your family and head to the hills. As they're heading to the hills, mom turns back to take one more look at her house. She just got the windows redone, the floors fixed, and she's wanting one last look, and you know what happens to her? She, she, she doesn't make the escape. And so it's just dad and daughters, and they're up in the, they find their way up to a cave to hide out, and they could still see the smoke smoldering, that what's left of their town. And in, the scripture says that in the girls' minds, they're the only ones that made it. They're the only ones left on earth, is daughters and dad. Understanding everything we've talked about, about a woman's place in this society, they're thinking, I need safety and security. Something's going to happen to dad one day. What's that going to leave us if we're the only people left? So they hatch a plot. We need to get dad drunk so that we can have sons. 
bad plan, but that's what they did. Genesis 19, 36 to 38. So both of Lot's daughters came, became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. The Moabites and the Ammonites were a thorn in the Israelites' flesh from day one. These are members of their family tree who came about by incest. You can imagine the Israelites were embarrassed and ashamed of this part of their family tree. This is how it got started. It goes on. So right out of the gate, it's not good. They pretend the Moabites don't exist until they can't ignore them any longer. As time goes on, there's still some water under the bridge, some things happen, and God kind of has a moment where he talks to the Israelites. He says, he gives them a warning. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6 says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on you. Go back and read those stories You'll understand more. However, the Lord God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. That's kind of a big warning, right? It's kind of a line in the sand. Don't have anything to do with these people because of how they've treated you. Stay away from them. Third way is the Moabites had influenced the Israelites just before going into the promised land. They'd influence the Israelites to worship the fertility god, Baal. See, the Moabite king, his name was Balak, and he, he was intimidated by the Israelites. They were large, they'd been victorious in battle, and he was threatened by them, and he knew that he could not win a military battle against them if he needed to, but what he could do is he could reduce their population if he could get a curse put on them, so he hired Balaam to do it. Balaam failed, couldn't do it, and so he said, well, if Balaam can't do it, I'll get them to disobey their god, and God will curse them. And this plan worked. The king of Moab sent in a bunch of Moabite women to seduce young Israelite men into worshiping their fertility god, Baal. You can imagine what you do to worship a fertility god. And so because of that, God curses the Israelites. As we'll read here, Numbers 25, 4 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people Kill them, and he's talking about the Israelites. Kill them and expose them in the broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. 3,000 people on 9-11 gave their life. And if you were there to see that, whether in person or on television, it made an indelible mark on you, didn't it? You still remember that to this day. You remember where you were when you saw it. Can you imagine the Israelites losing 24,000 of their young men and then quickly forgetting that? Quickly forgetting who caused that? Quickly forgetting that it was the Moabites. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org. She's a Moabite woman. Her character is already impugned. They see her as a loose woman. They see her as someone who is a threat. She's already a product generationally of incest. She's not viewed well.
She's the outsider. She has a lot to overcome. Let's get into a little bit of the plot, and then we're going to close. Ruth 1, verse 1, we'll read the first five verses because that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So right off the bat, you've got two widows with no children, no sons. They're in the worst possible place they could be. Naomi's in a foreign land. Ruth, later we learn, decides to go back to Israel, where she's never been, to live as a foreigner. A foreigner from Moab, which we just talked about, why that's a big deal. They're in the worst possible place they could be. Out of desperation, they make the harrowing trip back to Israel, where every day along that journey had to have been dangerous for women to be alone. And they go back desperately hoping that someone, some relative, would see them and have pity on them and redeem them back into their family. And that's the story of the book of Ruth. So in conclusion, the Ruth's story is one of redemption. And it points to a larger story of redemption because out of Ruth's story comes the lineage for Christ. And it begins to tell his story. It also points to, it's, a, it's, it's an example, it's, it's a kind, it's a type of the Christ story of that redemption. I'm going to look at the family compound one last time. Put it back up on the screen if you would. Um, I want to do something. I want to contrast this. This is the Badov. This is the father's household. And as you look at that, that picture and reminded what it all represents, what all is happening, what all is going on there, understand this is a subsistence culture. They, they farm to live. They farm to eat. And they get up tomorrow and they do it again just for the privilege of being able to do it again. Do you understand? They're working their tails off just to make it. And I want to contrast this picture with what Jesus says in John 14, too. He says, in my father's house, in my father's bait off, there are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. Here I see huts, not mansions. I see them working to the bone with no guarantee of security or safety. But if you're in Christ, you're part of the Father's household. There is no security like it. There is no safety like it. There is no peace like it. You belong to this household, and the cool thing is, is that Jesus paid the price to redeem you into his family. And this Father is eternal. He will not die. He will not go anywhere. There is no famine or catastrophe that will cause him to abdicate his household. You are his, and all he has is yours. It's an incredible inheritance for those in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for paying the price for us. Thank you for redeeming us. 
Thank you for giving us hope and a future. Thank you for caring enough to pay the price that we might return to you and that you would then shelter us under your wings, that we would have the, the, the peace, the safety, the provision that we long for. And when I look at this picture of the Israelite Badov, I see scarcity, I see worry, I see tiredness. But in your household, there is abundance, and there is joy, and there is awesome love and peace and provision. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we go through this study of the book of Ruth, that we will see redemption in a brand new way. We will understand the cost at which it's made and uh, help us have a greater understanding and, and gratitude for what you've done for us by renewing us in your spirit. Thank you for these precious folks that are gathered here tonight. Be with them as they go home, provide for their safety, and invite them back uh, next time as we dig first into chapter one. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.